Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are very excited here at Theopolis to let you know that Esther Meek will be the instructor for our 2018 Trinity course, which will be in August. This course is entitled Loving to Know, and it's an introduction to covenant epistemology. It's going to be held from August 13th through 17th at Beeson Divinity School here in Birmingham, Alabama. You've probably seen some of Esther Meek's brilliant work on our website, but in case you're new to her and her work, she is the professor of philosophy at Geneva College, and her books include Contact with Reality, A Little Manual for Knowing, Loving to Know, which is her introduction to covenant epistemology, and Longing to Know, a philosophy of knowledge for ordinary people. During this course week, you're not only going to learn about covenant epistemology, but you're going to be interacting with leading scholars all week long. There's social activities in the evening and all meals are shared together. You're going to be learning in the context of liturgy and worship, and you'll sing dozens of psalms with other classmates and your instructors. And there's lively and engaging seminar discussion. Registration for this class is going to open up on June 1st, and if you register before June 22nd, we're going to give you 10% off of the registration fee, as well as a free copy of A Little Manual for Knowing by Esther Meek. For more information about this course, you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and it's right there on the front page. You can also check out the link that I've put right there in the show notes for you. We're really excited to see many of you there. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are joined by Pastor John Barrich to discuss the text for Trinity Sunday 2018. We really hope that you're sharpened by these observations on these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and today I'm here with Alistair Roberts, our regular guest on the Theopolis Podcast. Welcome, Alistair. Thank you. And we also have a special guest today, uh, Pastor John Barrich, uh, who is a pastor in the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches down in Sulphur, Louisiana. And John has been here in Birmingham for the last week teaching our uh, Pentecost term intensive course on Joshua Judges and Ruth. Uh, it's been a fantastic course. Um, it uh, has covered some a lot of ground, impressively covered a lot of ground. John is still sitting upright even after some 15 or more hours of teaching and a lot of informal conversations in between. And uh, I highly recommend the course when it comes out on audio. Um, if you're interested in studying any of those books, it's a, a place, definitely a place to, uh, to go for insight. Uh, John has been extremely pastoral, applying those books of the Bible to the church and uh, showing how they reveal Christ. And it's just been a fantastic week. So welcome, John. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And uh, this is John's very first participation in a podcast ever. So uh, I'm sure that he'll, he'll shine and do wonderfully. Uh, today we're talking about the texts, uh, the lectionary texts for the uh, Trinity Sunday in 2018, that's May 27th, and the text for Trinity Sunday 2018 are Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, a portion of Acts 2, uh, especially verses 22 to 36, uh, and then uh, the first 17 verses of John 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. 
And Trinity Sunday, obviously, is always a Sunday, an opportunity to teach on the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, to uh, introduce that or to clarify it or to teach it to uh, the churches. Uh, we may get into some of that. What, uh, what I want to spend most of our time doing today is uh, focusing on the, the lectionary readings um, and with a view, obviously, to how they illuminate the, uh, the particular occasion on Trinity Sunday. But let me start with Isaiah 6 and just uh, make a few, few comments about Isaiah 6 and the other two of you can chime in. Um, Isaiah 6 is included as a reading for Trinity Sunday for obvious reasons. It's uh, Isaiah's commissioning scene. He's commissioned as a prophet in this scene. And he appears before the face of Yahweh the king. And around surrounding Yahweh are seraphim who are burning ones who are, are crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, which has been taken for centuries as a, an old, one of the Old Testament passages that uh, indicates the triunity of God. Uh, God is thrice holy. Uh, and uh, so Isaiah 6 fits into, that, uh, in, into this Sunday's readings for that reason. But I want to say a few words about the, the context uh, in Isaiah and then a, a couple things about the text itself. Um, this is part of a section uh, that uh, the first... Uh, 12 chapters of Isaiah uh, function as a, as a unit of Isaiah. I, I've argued in the past that Isaiah 1 through 12 is a prelude to the book of a, as a whole, and a prelude to the book as a whole in a way that uh, it, it, it mimics the book as a whole in its structure and order. Uh, one of the striking things about Isaiah 6, just in terms of the, uh, the uh, genre uh, of Isaiah, it's one of the few passages of Isaiah that has any narrative attached to it. Isaiah six through eight has uh, starts with this vision of Isaiah and his commissioning, and goes through a couple of encounters with Ahaz. Um, the only other large scale narrative section of Isaiah is right in the middle of the book, in Isaiah uh, thirty six to thirty nine, which is about the siege of Jerusalem. And when you line up Isaiah one through twelve with the re- with Isaiah as a whole, uh, those two. Uh, sections, those two narrative sections, match, uh, structurally match. And so the narrative about Isaiah's commissioning is uh, linked to the narrative of the uh, siege of Jerusalem, Sennacherib siege of Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah appears in those chapters in the center of the book as a character in his own prophecy, just as he does here at the beginning of the book in in chapter 6. And both of those passages have to do with uh, kingship. Uh, Isaiah 6 begins a section of the first portion of Isaiah that ends with uh, the beginning of chapter 9. It's bracketed by references to a Davidic king. Isaiah, Uzziah, rather, has just died, and then there's a promise of a new Davidic king coming up later. So um, this is a, a passage about kingship, a pas- passage about the Lord of hosts as the king, commissioning his prophet to go to the king of Judah and bring a message of uh, a message of warning. Uh, just one word about the about the commissioning itself, and then I'll turn it over to the, the rest of you to talk about. When, when Isaiah is uh, sees the Lord of hosts, he recognizes his sin. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Uh, that's the seventh in a series of woes that's been covered, that's been running through the last several chapters. Uh, Isaiah has been pronouncing woes against Judah, and now in the presence of the Lord of hosts, he pronounces a self-woe. Um, he acknowledges his own participation in the sin of the people. But what the Lord does in response to that is to purify him 
by uh, touching the coal from the altar to his lips, purifies his lips so that now he can speak. He's no longer speaking with the defiled mouth of un just another uh, citizen of Judah. He's now speaking with a purified mouth, speaking the word of the Lord. And I think in the context, it also suggests that he can join in the songs of the seraph, uh, the seraphim. The seraphim are burning ones who are before the Lord, who can confess the Lord's glory. Uh, Isaiah recognizes when he stands in the presence of the Lord that he's uh, defiled, that he, uh, that he can't speak, he has no right to speak. But now his, his mouth has been purified and he can join the seraphic choir at the Lord's throne. And uh, he's, his mouth is also turned into, he's turned into another burning one, as it were, and his mouth becomes not only purified to, to praise Yahweh, but also becomes an, an instrument of the Lord's judgment and the voice of the Lord to the people. Uh, he becomes, as uh, Jeremiah is in his prophecy, a kind of fire breather. Uh, the coal touches his mouth, and now he can breathe the Lord's fiery word to the people. Yes, we discussed last week as well about the significance of Pentecost and the connection between fire and prophecy. I think it's interesting, the play on words of the tongues of flame and the tongues that are spoken. And here I think we see something similar, that the tongue of the prophet is something that set, in some sense, it set aflame. There's an interesting contrast in chapter 7. In fact, there's fire back in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 24, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom ascend like dust. This is God's judgment on those who've rejected the law. And then in chapter 7, verse 4, the message to Isaiah is, Take heed and be quiet, do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, so the, the evil are also firebrands, but they're stubs, stubs of smoking firebrands. Isaiah is the one who is, who is set on fire with the word of God. And so his fire is the one that's going to bring judgment upon these others. And therefore, he's not to be afraid of their fire. He has the true fire. Yes, and in chapter 7, those uh, stubs of smoking firebrands are the two kings who are ganging up on King Ahaz. Uh, and uh, as the... As that passage goes forward, the contrast is between the head of Samaria, the head of Damascus, and the head of Jerusalem. Yahweh is the head of Jerusalem. He's, he's the one who's truly a consuming fire. And these others might, they, they aspire to be fiery, uh, a fiery presence in their cities. But in fact, they're just smoldering firebrands. The significant, significance of Isaiah 6 within the context of the New Testament is something I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on. At the end of Acts 28, it's seen as almost something that sums up the church's own mission. And then in, I think it's John 12, um, John relates this vision to Isaiah seeing the glory of Christ. And so it seems to be a, a very significant passage that Christ himself uses in relationship to his um, parables. And on other occasions, it is it's seen as paradigmatic for New Testament ministry of the church. How are we to understand the way that the New Testament writers connected this to their calling? Uh, I'll jump in, and I'm sure John will have thoughts. Uh, were you referring to the, 
the commission itself, which is to go to a people who become insensitive in their hearts, their ears are deaf, their eyes are, are dim. Uh, they've been worshiping idols and they become like the idols that they're worshiping. Uh, they're suffering from sensory deprivation, uh, as uh, Gregory Beale describes it. They become like what they worship. And uh, Isaiah's mission is uh, not going to open those ears or eyes or soften those hearts, but it's rather going to be, it's going to have a, the opposite effect. Their hearts are already hard, and Isaiah's work is going to be to confirm the hardness of their hearts and the deafness of their ears and the blindness of their eyes. Um, so in one sense, it, it seems like uh, yeah, it's a, it's a commission to a failed prophetic ministry. But this is, in fact, part of the Lord's word not returning void. Uh, it has its effect regardless. Uh, when the prophet speaks, uh, what he's, his words are going to have some kind of effect on the people. They're going to be effective for opening eyes, for opening ears, for uh, softening hearts, or they're going to be effective in the other direction that confirms Judah in their, in their, uh, uh, in their hardness. And I think that it's that, that's... Uh, so in that context, I think uh, we understand how Jesus describes his, uh, his parables in terms of Isaiah 6. He's speaking to a people, too, who's become dull of hearing, a people who's blinded, uh, and uh, he knows that his word to them is, is going to confirm them in that hardness uh, and uh, that it's going to only compound their judgment. And I think at the end of Acts, we have Paul saying the same things about the Jews uh, particularly in Rome, uh, they are fulfilling. This is, this is just what um, this is just what Isaiah prophesied. Um, your hearts are hard, uh, your ears are deaf, your eyes are blind, and that's justification for Paul to turn from the Jews to the Gentiles. So I don't believe that uh, Isaiah. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't believe that uh, the Acts uh, quotation of this is a uh, description of the church's permanent ministry. Uh, that uh, the church is always going to uh, face this kind of resistance. It's never going to be effective in opening eyes and ears and softening hearts. But in the particular co context of Jesus' ministry uh, in his earthly life and then the ministry of the apostles, in those contexts, the ministry of the, apostle, of the gospel to the Jews has the effect of just hardening them and, and compounding, leading to, leading to the judgment. It is interesting, Alistair, as you pointed out, that in John 12, it says, after quoting this passage and the first part of Isaiah 53, John says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And the him there is Jesus. All the way through that whole section, the he, he had done so many signs before them. John 12, verse 37. They did not believe in him. And Jesus has been speaking about how they need to believe in the light to become sons of light. Well, both those things, Isaiah 53, and also this passage in Isaiah 6, John describes as something Isaiah said when he saw Jesus' glory, the glory of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, but also this glory that Isaiah sees in our passage in Isaiah 6 is the glory of Jesus, the glory of the light, the shining, which may be connected even with the... Uh, the ideas of fire, the coal. So when you, when you have the light, you're to believe in the light, to become sons of light. When you see Jesus' glory, you're to believe in it, and then you also become a glorious one. And in Isaiah 6, when you see 
all the burning ones around the Lord, Isaiah becomes one who is burning. So there may be some parallels there that are worth pursuing. But it's interesting that Isaiah says that this one who appeared, who is seen in Isaiah 6, was the pre-incarnate Jesus. That it is the same person as, as manifested himself in John. Striking, I think, in the Old Testament theophanies that we see descriptions, for instance here, the hem of his robe filled the temple, or in Ezekiel's um, chariot vision, the vision of the body and the, the torso, but there's, and then the description in the um, theophany of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, seeing the back of God as he passes by. In none of those cases do you have a description of the shining face, for instance, or something more particular in terms of an identification. Whereas on the Mount of Transfiguration, I think we see something of a, a theophany in which Christ is identified as this one. And so what John is declaring in John 12 is that the one that Isaiah saw, the one that Abraham saw, the one that Moses saw, the one that Ezekiel saw is Jesus. And I think that's a very striking statement because as you go back through the Old Testament text now, the one who in some sense is the glorious appearance of God in some sense incognito is now made known to us in Jesus Christ, which leads to a new way of reading these familiar texts. And it sounds like part of what you're saying, Alistair, is that um, the, uh, you, you said that in these other theophanies, um, they don't see the shining face. Moses sees the back of Yahweh on the mountain. Um, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, that glory takes on particular features. Yeah, that's very helpful, and I think it's one of the one of the a second reason why Isaiah six is an appropriate reading for Trinity Sunday. And the obvious one is the is the uh, what we call the Sanctus of the Trisagion, uh, threefold uh, holy, the uh, the God who's triply holy. But then, uh, when we look at the way the New Testament reads this passage, that gives us an additional reason for thinking that Isaiah six is a, Trin a Trin Trinity Sunday reading because it's being read as a theophany of the Son. Uh, the Son is the one who's uh, appearing before Isaiah. And that, um, I, I don't want to uh, push us past Isaiah 6 if there are other comments, but I think that's uh, also exactly what's going on in Acts 2 when Peter quotes from the psalm. And I want to get there in a second, but uh, John, do you have any, did you have something further on Isaiah? There's one other thing that makes Isaiah 6 appropriate for Trinity Sunday is, is verse 8. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Hmm. Now, I suppose you could say for us, meaning the Lord and the seraphim, but it doesn't seem as if the seraphim are the ones sending. So again, this is a, an us that I think is the pronoun being used for a plurality in God, indicating already some adumbration of the uh, the Trinity here in this passage. Right, and I noticed as, as, uh, uh, in verse 1, uh, I don't have the Hebrew text in front of me, but uh, uh, what Isaiah says he sees is the Adonai sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Um, but the one who is uh, praised by the seraphim in verse 3 is Yahweh of hosts. Um, so uh, I would have to look at this more uh, closely again in verse eight, it's back to Adonai. I, I presume it's Adonai. I know it's not 
Yahweh because it's not capitalized in my English Bible. Uh, so this might be another a place like like Psalm 110 where you have uh, Adonai and Yahweh uh, both uh, either at least referred to, if not appearing together in the same scene, which might account for an us. Um, there's a you know, again a, a plurality, a, a doubling. But in, in Acts, 2, Acts 2 is a, one of the passages of the New Testament that uh, reads an Old Testament passage in terms of the gospel. Um, this is part of Peter's Pentecost sermon, but it's the part of the Pentecost sermon where Peter describes um, not only what the Jews did to Jesus, that they put him on the cross with, their wicked, with wicked hands, uh, what God did to Jesus by raising him to the dead and exalting him, but also it's about the coronation gift uh, of the Spirit that Jesus receives from his Father and then pours out. Um, so you have that, uh, that Trinitarian pattern um, uh, at, in verse 33, having re- been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So the, the Trinitarian structure that's being um, revealed here is... Um, different from the one that we typically think of Father, Son, Spirit, uh, which is a biblical, it's a biblical description of the persons. But this is Father, Spirit, Son, the Spirit as the, uh, the coronation gift, as it were, to the Son, which then he shares. Uh, Father, Spirit, Son is in, in Luke's Gospel is the same ordering you have uh, for the incarnation. It's because of the overshadowing of the Spirit that Mary conceives the Son of God in her womb. So the Father sends His Son through the agency of the Spirit. Uh, so you have uh, that kind of pattern. I just uh, refer listeners to uh, Thomas Wynandy's book, The uh, Father Spirit of Sonship, where he develops that this and other passages in the New Testament uh, that uh, speak in terms of the Spirit as a, a mediator, a mediating presence between the Father and the Son. Um, and he tries to work out some of the, the systematic implications of that. Well, the thing I wanted to highlight and, uh, is the quotation from Psalm 16, which begins in verse 25 and then goes for, through verse 28. Peter quotes this psalm, which he attributes to David, but he says at the beginning, uh, David says, of him, uh, of this Christ. Uh, the psalm is about uh, David's own experience, you would think, reading the psalm itself. But Peter reads it as a uh, psalm about the, the son, and then he has a little argument afterwards uh, to prove that it wasn't David speaking in his own voice, but he's taking on the persona of the son. It can't be David himself because David was, in fact, he did, in fact, die and his soul was abandoned to death and he did undergo decay. Um, so when he says, I didn't undergo decay, he can't be speaking in his own persona because that didn't actually happen. So he must be speaking in the persona of the son. Um, uh, Matthew Bates, in a, his book on the birth of the Trinity, uh, d- describes uh, how both in the New Testament and in the early centuries after the New Testament, uh, writers read the Old Testament with what he describes as prosopological exegesis, uh, he, especially the Psalms, Psalms that are spoken by David, where David is taking on the persona of the Son, and um, Psalm 110 that I alluded to would be one case, He's staying on the persona of the Son, and that's taken as revelation of the Son in his relation to his Father. Um, and that's one of the 
one of the important threads of uh, the, uh, the Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarian teaching of the New Testament. Seems to me that's related to typology more generally in many cases, where we see in the Old Testament and elsewhere certain identities that take on greater significance as time develops. So, for instance, the character, the character of David, within David we see the greater son of David, or within Abraham we see Abraham's seed, or within character within Israel we see the one who is to come, who will come in the likeness of Israel. So a passage like Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, can be referred by Matthew to the greater son that is called out of Egypt. And that relationship, for instance, with um, Solomon and, and the Shulamite can be seen as a relationship between the Messiah and his people as well, because these characters are not just acting in their own right, but stand for a deeper typological identity that Christ takes up the fabric of that identity. And in those identities, people were already having a sense of the shape of the Messiah to, the Messiah to come. I find it interesting in Acts 2 that it begins, before our text that we're discussing today, it begins with the quotation from Joel, in which God says, I... God, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And in verse 18, I will pour out my spirit in those days. But then when Peter begins to preach, by the time he comes to verses 32 and 33, he says that Jesus is raised up and he received the spirit. And then he poured out the spirit. So Jesus does what God said in Joel that he would do. God says, I'll pour out my spirit. And Peter says that it is specifically Jesus who is poured out the Spirit, having received the Spirit from the Father. So what God is promising to do is something Jesus does, which is another indication that Jesus is not only the Son who has received this from the Father, but is himself God who is fulfilling this promise. Yeah, that's, that's a, I think that's an important kind of insight that uh, uh, is a... Uh, should be part of a, a Christian apologetic or Christian response to various uh, heretical cults and sects that um, think of um, various Aryan uh, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, that uh, have responses to particular proof texts. And if you go to if you go to John one with a Jehovah's Witness and try to argue from John one, they've got all their counter arguments lined up, and it's. Uh, you don't make much headway because they they've already been prepared for that. What I, I I suspect they're not as prepared for is the kind of argument that you just suggested, John, where it's um, there. There's a uh, a more implied uh, implied uh, status for Jesus as the as the divine Son who's doing God's work of pouring out the Spirit. I think of uh, simple things like um, the repeated pervasive confession that Jesus is kurios. Um, well, anybody reading the New Testament against the background of the old, <laughs> uh, every time it says that, it's, um, it's uh, asserting uh, a, uh, a divine status. When, when it says that uh, Jesus is Savior, Soter, um, the Lord is our Savior. Uh, he will judge us. So those, those various uh, divine activities and uh, the, it's it's not just one or two proof texts, but it's it's woven into the entire New Testament that Jesus has this 
has this status. And and as you say, it's it's evident in the way that the way that Peter is interpreting that Joel passage. Relating this passage, I think, to the larger context of Luke's witness to Christ, Luke presents Christ throughout as the man of the Spirit. That Christ, as the Anointed One, is the one who's at every single stage the Spirit is involved in his ministry, whether that's being conceived by the power of the Spirit or whether that's being baptized and the Spirit alighting upon him or whether that's being filled with the Spirit and led in the Spirit into the wilderness or whether it's a matter of being transfigured in the Spirit or um, giving up the Spirit at at his death to his disciples or whether it's a matter of the giving of the Spirit that happens at Pentecost, at every single point, Christ is the man of the Spirit. And so at this point, receiving the Spirit from Christ is an entrance, not just receiving this um, this gift that is unrelated to Christ's own identity, but it's an entrance into Christ's own identity as the one who is formed by the Spirit, the one who is the man of the Spirit. I came across a quotation from Irenaeus uh, in the last couple of weeks where uh, he says uh, that the the Spirit was given uh, to the Son, the Spirit accompanies the Son so that he can become something like accustomed to living with flesh. (laughs) Um, He's accustomed to living with the man Jesus and then that now, I, I know I'm not using literal terminology here, but the now humanized Spirit is the one that's poured out on us. It's the spirit of the spirit who's accompanied the son uh, through his life uh, in his self-offering in death and then in his in his resurrection. That's the spirit that we we receive. And as you said, that's that's really programmatic for Luke's entire presentation of the early church because what we see in the following chapters of Acts is that the spirit of Jesus is given to conform the lives of the apostles to to the life of Jesus not just to produce the moral fruit of Jesus' life, but actually to conform the lives, the life story and the life history of the apostles to the life history of Jesus. Um, the suffering and glory of Christ, that the spirit who accompanied Jesus through his suffering and glory is now indwells the, uh, indwells the church to su- share Christ's sufferings and to also share in his glory. We probably shouldn't um, uh, move on from this passage with, without addressing verse 23 where Peter charges that the Jews uh, de- uh, the, that Jesus was delivered up to the Jews by a predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, uh, also says that uh, Jesus was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. It's a, a traditional uh, Calvinistic proof text that combines both God's predetermination of this event of the cross uh, and also human responsibility. Uh, the uh, the fact that uh, the the fact that the Lord predetermined this plan does not excuse the wickedness of the ones who put him to death. Uh, they are godless in putting Jesus to death, even as they're fulfilling this predetermined plan. I was hoping to provoke a response from you, John. I was agreeing with you. <laughs> That's a response. <laughs> that is a response. Elsewhere in Scripture, one of the things I find interesting is the way in which not just the actions of the righteous, but the wicked play certain roles that are almost typological. The role of the serpent or the tyrant 
constantly repeat similar tropes. Um, whether that's Herod kill, killing the baby boys or the attack upon the bride with someone like Pharaoh or Bimelech, these are repeated patterns which show that even within, it's as if God has the script for the villain as well as for the hmm. righteous within his um, hmm. within his purpose that he set up. And here within this passage, it's I think it follows very much a similar pattern. We discussed a few weeks ago the character of Judas, who recalls various characters from previous periods of history, whether that's Joab or whether it's Ahithophel. These characters are not just surds. Um, they are people who are caught up within this greater plan and purpose of God. Their hearts are hardened, and in that very hardness, God uses them to achieve his purpose. And speaking of the serpent, we can move on to uh, John 3, which is our last reading for this, uh, for this week. Uh, it's one of the uh, places where Jesus doesn't speak about the serpent in the garden, but speaks about the serpent in the wilderness. He's, of course, alluding to the episode in the book of Numbers where uh, Israel uh, grumbled against the Lord. Uh, the Lord sent serpents among them so that they were bitten and dying, and uh, Moses set up a bronze serpent on a, uh, on a pole. And when they looked to that bronze serpent, they were healed of their snake bite. And Jesus, uh, speaking as the Son of Man, compares, his, uh, him, compares himself to the serpent. Uh, he's going to be like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. We know from elsewhere in John that the lifting up is a lifting up on the cross. And uh, so that uh, uh, he will be the one to whom uh, the world will look in order to be delivered from the poison of the serpent, the poison of Satan. Uh, I also think that the, this is a this is the be maybe not the beginning, but it's one one uh, part of a developing theology of the cross that runs throughout John's gospel. Um, the serpent is being lifted up in the wilderness, and Jesus compares that to the Son of Man being lifted up. Uh, that, I think, is a, an allusion back to Daniel 7, uh, where the Son of Man is exalted on clouds um, in order to ascend and to receive the kingdom and dominion power of the, of the bestial empires from the Ancient of Days. So the lifting up here is a lifting up in exaltation, uh, not just a lifting up on the cross to bring healing. That's, uh, that's the overt import of the uh, typology of the serpent. But he, the Son of Man is also being lifted up uh, in order to rule. Uh, but both of those dimensions, both of those are dimensions of the cross. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is the serpent uh, that we look to for healing. But he's also the Son of Man who is beginning his ascent to the Father and uh, beginning to receive the glory of uh, the dominion and power of those kingdoms. Since it's come up in this passage, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on the connection between the seraphim and the burning serpents that we see within the story in the wilderness? I don't think they're identi identical, uh, although the Isaiah passage, when I investigated this some time ago, then uh, I concluded that the Isaiah passage does suggest that the, uh, the seraphim are, think about the seraphim as flames that are kind of darting around the Lord's throne in my, in my, in my head. I'm imagining, uh, yeah, slithery serpent-like darts of flame around the Lord's throne, um, and the the 
the um, serpents in the in the wilderness. Um, I think Nachash is used uh, in in uh, that is the word for serpent is used in uh, the Numbers passage. But they're burning serpents. They're Sarach Nachash. Uh, and then I think in some parts of that passage that uh, it just becomes seraph. It's the burning ones that are causing it. So um, I would say that there's some kind of analogy. Maybe it's a visual analogy, at least in part. I'd be hesitant to identify the serpents in the wilderness with seraphim. Or, or as some have suggested, the seraphim are, you know, we, we have a, at least some portrait of what the cherubim look like. They're the four-faced cherubim. Uh, to my mind, it's a little too much to suggest that the seraphim have the shape of serpents. Um, it, it, it seemed to me when I, I've investigated in the past that it was more like a more of a visual analogy than a, than an actual description of the seraphim. I've not settled my thoughts on the matter, but it's a connection that intrigues me. What is the birth of water and the spirit? I've heard the suggestion that the being born of water is the crossing of the Red Sea and being born of the Spirit is the the new birth that Christ is bringing through his resurrection um, and that that relates to Israel in its first coming to existence through the Exodus and then this later, um, this new birth of Pentecost that's awaited. What are your thoughts on that? Is it something that should be related to an individual experience or is, is it something that's a national birth that's in view? Well, I think that uh, a couple of thoughts that uh, occurred to me. A few weeks ago, we discussed First um, John 5. Uh, the Son of God came by water and by blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And I suggested that that was a reference to Jesus coming not only in the, um, the kind of glory of his baptism, uh, but uh, he, comes in a double ba- he comes with a double baptism, a baptism of water and blood. Um, and so, in, in some in some way, the pattern that you're describing would fit with that kind of idea that you're talking about a double baptism of Israel, one that happened in the past and one that happened in the present. Uh, and that would also fit at least with verse seven, where uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, "Do not marvel that I said to you, uh, to put it in southern, y'all must be born again." That's a plural. Um, and so that that suggests a rebirth, a national rebirth, is in view, and that uh, verse seven at least would lend lend weight to the idea that you're talking about um, uh, Israel's Israel's rebirth. So, the, and so I guess the import is, tell me if this is what you're saying, Alistair. The import would be uh, Nicodemus, you represent an Israel that's come through the water. You've been baptized in the water, but um, you need the double baptism of water and the Spirit. Israel needs that double baptism in order to enter into the into the grace and truth of Christ. Baptism into Moses is not sufficient. Is that the is that the way you're taking it? Yes, and he's being spoken to as the teacher of Israel. Right. Uh, Rob van Howlingen, who's who teaches New Testament at Kampen in the Netherlands, in his commentary on John, he argues that born of water in this context is a reference to John's baptism. So we've just had a renewed Israel, an Israel that's been born of water through John's baptism, but that in itself is only a renewal of the Old Covenant. So it's a, it's a renewal of the Red Sea baptism, in a sense, a renewal of an exodus. In fact, John is calling people out of a, an Israel that's become Egypt to kind of go through another sort of exodus Red Sea event and come back into the land, but that's not all that Israel needs. And so he takes the born of water to be John's baptism, 
and born of the Spirit there to be a reference to Pentecost. Um, so he's picking up on what John says about he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom will you see the Spirit descending and remaining? This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So Van Howlingen is trying to pick up that reference back in John chapter 1 and, and, and see it here also. Born of water being John's baptism, born of the Spirit being the, the future baptism at Pentecost. But again, taking it in a, uh, in a more corporate sense than just an individual sense. Uh, this, is, this is why we have John Barich on the podcast, so that we get a reference to somebody who teaches at Compton University. Uh, no one else that we know would come up with that kind of reference. Let, let me add, though, that uh, although verse 7 is plural, uh, the earlier statements are not. Uh, uh, I say to you, unless one is born again, that's tis. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Uh, Nicodemus, how can a man be born again? Uh, Jesus says, I, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Again, that's tis. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit. So, I think there's a there's a there's a national dimension to it that comes out particularly in verse seven, at least in terms of the, the way the the verbs are working. But I don't want to polarize that to an, to the an individual uh, application or individual dimension to it. Uh, those those two things are not at odds with each other. Um, and we could, you know this isn't following the text strictly, but you could kind of harmonize what's being said here this way: you say Israel needs to be. Uh, born and uh, baptized by the Spirit, Israel as a whole needs to be. But then each individual, in order to share in that rebirth of Israel, also needs to pass through, the, uh, pass through, the, uh, uh, pass through this new birth. So I, I don't think it's inappropriate. That it, historically, this has been taken as a baptism. I think that's perfectly appropriate to take it as a baptism text. Even if we say that there's this national dimension to it, there's still this individual uh, rebirth that has to take place in order for an individual to share in that uh, rebaptized or that reborn Israel. We see that in Acts 2, again, the passage we were looking at, where it's Jesus who has received the Spirit. Jesus pours out the Spirit, but the promise was that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. But the all flesh that's enjoying it right now are the ones in the church. For the others who want to join in, Peter says, let every one of you be baptized. Let every one, there's that individual thing. If you want to share in this corporate baptism of the Holy Spirit coming upon the new Israel, then you individual Israelites out there need to be baptized into the name of Jesus to receive that gift. So there's both those dimensions there in Acts 2. I'm intrigued by verse 8, referring to the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And we say, yes, that's how the Holy Spirit is. But what Jesus says is, that's what everybody who is born of the Spirit is like. Do you have any comments on that, Peter or Alistair? I'll, I do have a, a, a couple of thoughts. Um, within the Gospel of John, that's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who's born of the Spirit. And uh, where did he come from? Where is he going? Are questions that are repeatedly asked about Jesus. Uh, where, where is this man from? We don't know where he is. And he's, he's very elusive. He gets away from people. And then at the end, when he says, I'm going away, all the disciples are immediately asking, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. Uh, so I think that's preeminently Jesus in John's gospel. But then, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a description of those who are in Christ are also born of the Spirit and are elusive, wispy, make sounds. But uh, uh, you, you could uh, put it in kind of concrete terms. You know, um, After Pentecost, suddenly there's this... Um, 
community of Jesus followers in, within Jerusalem. Where did they come from? <laughs> and where are they headed? You know, this has, this has no natural origin. You can't, you can't trace the genealogy. I mean, I suppose you could trace some kind of genealogy, but there's, there's a, there's a, there's a um, they're born from heaven. They're born by the Spirit. So there's a, uh, suddenly, suddenly there's this new community that, that didn't exist before. It's mysterious. Yeah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm